Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, a USH med student, back again with another podcast with three amazing students. I think I've said that every time, but it's always true. Uh, let's go ahead and do some introductions. We have uh, a returning guest, we have a, a new guest, and we have uh, a returning guest who is a new star of the show. Let's start with uh, our newest guest. Um, I'm Katie. I'm a third-year <laughs> medical student at RVU, um, and I'm interested in going into psychiatry, actually. Yeah, this is your second rotation this year in psychiatry, right? It is, yeah. And you talked to some of your peers about where should I go get my second rotation. They said stay away from the state hospital, but totally. here you are anyway. Yeah, they said it was a terrible experience, didn't have any fun, so <laughs> had to come check it out for myself. <laughs> you got to throw a shout out to who uh, who your peers are that had a good experience here. Yeah, um, Lexi Moody and Kristen Kopistinski both recommended this rotation. Great students. Very, very, do I say that every, do I say that every time? Um, oh, good to have you here. And Ryan, you're back for another uh, another episode. I am back for round two. So I am Ryan Peters, also a third year med student at Rocky Vista, down in Southern Utah, and I am interested in internal medicine. Very good. Start of the show. Well, we're we're gonna see how we can make it happen. Um, Andrew Collier, uh, third year medical student at Rocky Vista as well, and planning on going into family medicine and seriously considering sports medicine. You have a, a history in, was it physical therapy or occupation? No. What, what, what was it, your history in, so, in college? What did you do there? So I had actually gone to school at an environmental school in New York. So I got my degree in environmental biology. And my opportunities to get some patient exposure, I did uh, therapeutic horticulture with spinal injury patients at a VA hospital there in, in Syracuse, New York. That's pretty cool. What was the experience like? It was, it was pretty incredible to have this opportunity to work with patients that had had their life seriously altered by, by physical limitations that they then had. And we were able to go about once or twice a week and do different activities, kind of giving them continuity of calendar year and letting them remember experiences that they'd had when they were younger and as children. And we were able to work with occupational therapists and the physical therapists to kind of design activities that got them moving in ways that maybe they weren't as excited about using a pegboard when they went to PT. It was more enjoyable than a pegboard is what you're saying. <laughs> I think it was and I don't think the uh, the food activities that we did with them with a little bit of edible horticulture didn't didn't hurt at all. Just to be clear, <laughs> edible horticulture not edibles. That is correct, yeah, <laughs> edible horticulture. Um, you, you can uh, confirm or deny this if you'd like. You have a rock hammer in the back of your car. I, I have two that I carry around with me all the time. The uh, leather, leather handled ones is the ones that I had chosen when I got them when I was graduating high school, yes. You gonna add any more about that or should we leave it there? I, I, I think we can, we can leave it there, let everyone pique their interest, let people Google some more about that. I, I love my leather handled <laughs> rock hammer too, great stuff. Uh, tell me how it was that, so, so let's um, go ahead, now that we've done some introductions, let's make a shift to the, the podcast topic. Tell me a little bit about how you picked this topic and what the topic is. So I knew when I was coming into this rotation from speaking with a couple of my classmates that there was this expectation to put together a podcast and I was, I was a little bit lost to begin with, honestly. I, I didn't have a, a topic idea and as I was considering different ideas and had looked up several articles, 
it kind of came to me that some of the uh, experiences I had had this last year on rotations had to do with people using alternative medicines to help treat um, conditions that they had. And I think one of the ones that came up fairly regularly was essential oils. And so it kind of made me wonder if there was any scientific data out there about how these essential oils were maybe assisting the other treatments that these patients were seeking and with it being uh, behavioral medicine rotation um, I wanted to look at anxiety and depression specifically and thought lavender would be a, a good place to start and started to find a few articles I, I, I might have rubbed my forehead when you started this topic yeah, I, I think I think you rubbed your forehead um, and a good old Charlie horse and uh, told me that it would be a, a podcast that might incite quite a few uh, listens because it's a, a hot topic and uh, I think the the Charlie horse in the forehead is probably every um, clinician's first reaction to hearing anyone talk about essential oils. So I think it's an important thing to educate ourselves about and know what's really going on. I I do want to say that there were a number of things that I came across in this podcast prep that really provided some information to me that helped me understand what I do in psychiatry better. And and perhaps we'll talk about those as we go along, but I, I think it's also fair to say that there are a lot of reasons why it might be worth listening to this podcast. Yeah, I think I found it an extremely interesting topic, and I think as I dove into some of the articles I was able to uh, find, I, I definitely learned a lot about the conditions that we were considering, as well as learned a lot about alternative medicines and medicines in general and kind of their, their acting points. Very, very interesting stuff. At, at the risk of, um, we, we always do this, right? We, we try to have some high yield portion of the podcast. I'd like to go ahead and do that now. We're picking generalized anxiety disorder because this seems to be the topic that has the most um, evidence out there for use of lavender oils uh, or lavender we'll, we'll be more specific later we'll just call it lavender right now right mm -hmm. uh, Leo's lavender essential oils um, <laughs> I think we saw that term a couple of times but generalized anxiety disorder so let's let's go ahead and shift gears to our guest stars and they've prepared some information about generalized anxiety disorder that hopefully is high yield in shelf prep Sure, yeah so just briefly um, the DSM criteria for GAD so this is when a person is going to have excessive worry, anxiety, sort of that apprehension feeling. Um, and this is going to be occurring more days than not for at least six months. And I know when we talk about the shelf exams and step exams that the timeline of um, more psychiatric conditions is super important. So um, these symptoms need to be present for at least six months for a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and some of those symptoms are restlessness, kind of feeling keyed up or on edge, um, easily fatigued, might have some difficulty concentrating, irritability, um, you might see some muscle tension as well, um, sleep, sleep disturbances, so maybe some insomnia, your mind is just racing at night, not able to shut the mind off and fall asleep in an appropriate amount of time. So that's kind of just a general overview of symptoms that you would typically see. Um, and then going into treatments just a little bit for generalized anxiety. SSRIs and SNRIs are um, the two big ones, kind of like the baseline treatment. Um, you can also do CBT, um, benzodiazepines, 
and a couple other ones, um, hydroxyzine, which has like antihistamine effects, and um, buspirone. So I, I don't know that hydroxyzine has an FDA indication, but I think it is used quite often in that setting. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? It, does it have an FDA approval? I'm not sure if it has FDA approval. I've seen it used quite a bit in family med clinics. Yeah. Um, we'll know by the end of the podcast, although I think if uh, my, my tendency is um, what's right for the shelf exam and what's right for me sometimes varies. And I believe we had a podcast on anticholinergic medications at one point where our goal is to stay away from those generally because of the long-term potential cognitive uh, effects of those. And then I think benzodiazepines, we've also expressed some hesitance, and I, hopefully most of the tests are moving away from that. But there are benzodiazepines that have FDA approval for anxiety spectrum disorders. Uh, mainstays, again, are those SSRIs, SNRIs. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, buspirone is, the I think, a medication that only has an FDA approval for generalized anxiety disorder. So. Um, I did look it up. The hydroxyzine does have an FDA approval for use in adults and children to relieve anxiety symptoms. Oh, be darned. I didn't know that. See, you learn something every day. I do remember, though, we talked with our preceptor, Dr. Thomas, about the use of hydroxyzine, and she had indicated that, I think it was after two weeks, that it was similar to placebo, mm -hmm. the effect of hydroxyzine. So. I didn't know that either. <laughs> a lot of things I don't know. I think, I, I do think that most people that use hydroxyzine would say, um, it's a better alternative than benzodiazepines in sure. terms of uh, diversion, misuse, um, tolerance, those kinds of issues. Um, by any chance, did, since you guys had like a three-minute window to prepare everything, did, did you guys spend any of that three minutes finding a, a, like a mnemonic that helps you remember generalized anxiety disorder criteria? I didn't see a mnemonic for GAD. Of course, you think of SIGI caps for um, depression, major depressive disorder, but I didn't see one specifically for generalized anxiety. Seems like we've had somebody mention one before, but for the life of me, I can't remember it. If it's if it's not a memorable mnemonic, it's not as helpful, is it? And then um, let's see. Was there anything else we wanted? We got timeline. We got key uh, criteria. And then is there a song associated with generalized generalized anxiety in your mind that you would think of? <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. I, I, oh, I'm hurt. I know. I don't remember. You don't remember the psychopathology assignment that we had. <laughs> oh. Mortally wounded. My chest is aching now. I have a chest ache. Um, uh, I think Colin Hay, uh, minute work, um, overkill, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's a, a good word for generalized anxiety disorder as well. The amount of thinking is overkill, right? All right, so uh, generalized anxiety disorder, high yield kinds of content is focused on that tense, keyed up, edgy, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes difficulty falling asleep, sometimes irritable, right? And you'll have, did you guys pick up any differences between how that might be presented on the shelf exam and how uh, major depressive disorder might be uh, portrayed on the shelf exam? I think mood is usually one of the key aspects of that that you have to come up with, maybe suicide risk. I don't know if there are any other ideas that you guys have. I do know that you you have to recognize that in general anxiety disorder, it is a general worry, right? It's not one specific thing that's bothering you, a particular stressor in the life, but it's 
you lay awake worrying about a bunch of different things. What if, and, and I think that's really important too, you lay, you lay in bed worrying about things. And I think that's one of the other things where the symptom overlap with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder becomes somewhat difficult for me, is the idea that I'm trying to figure out is somebody laying in bed awake because depression has dysregulated sleep or somebody laying in bed worrying and they are tired and want to fall asleep, right? Uh, one other question I have, what if somebody has been uh, generally worried for four months and seven days and three hours? What do we call that? Again, if it's, I feel like if it's sounding like generalized anxiety and it's been persistent like that. We might also uh, call it adjustment, adjustment disorder. disorder. I think that's an adjustment disorder, right? <laughs> sure. And then is there an acute stress disorder, which is less, or is that the precursor to PTSD? It's kind of a precursor to PTSD. That is symptoms of PTSD, but less than a month, and then more than a month would be considered PTSD. Excellent. Boom. All right, so let's, uh, we've done our high-yield part of generalized anxiety disorder. Now let's go ahead and uh, break out into um, lavandula, lavandula, uh, angustifolia, lavandula angustifolia, lavandula angustifolia. That's what I, I think it should be pronounced as. We'll see. We'll see. Both sides agree. Which uh, is the plant where linalool and linalil acetate come from, which are what we think are the active moieties in uh, the 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 preparations used to treat largely anxiety. Yeah, so it looks like in most of the, the preparations of an essential oil from this specific species of lavender, that um, there might be over 30 to 50 compounds that were listed in some of these articles, but those two seem to have the most interest relating to anxiety and maybe, maybe related depression in some of the articles that we looked at as far as treatment. I, I don't know if any of you were able to listen to the podcast on marijuana. Um, we, we now have well over 100 hours of content, and that's a lot to listen to for any student, right? So uh, I think one of the things that was very interesting to me is that the, the cannabis plant is loaded with various compounds, right, including terpenes. And I think one of the questions about this plant is it's also got a number of terpenes as well as uh, this acetate molecule, linalool acetate and linalool, linalool, right? And so some of the some of the challenges I think we have with what are these molecules doing is that uh, when they're tested and when they're looked at in a lab, they're looking at the preparations, not necessarily purifying one component, mostly. Yeah, I, I do think that um, we had an opportunity for them to to talk a little bit about percentages of these these compounds in the the different um, studies that were performed, and I, I do seem to rem recall that we uh, looked specifically at these compounds with at least one or two of the studies that they might have separated them out and actually looked at what they were doing. What they were trying to what the terpenes were doing and the phenols maybe I I don't remember now. So how how did we get from the point where hunter-gatherers were walking around trying to decide which leaves to chew on to essential oils. So from everything that I was looking at, it seems to be 
one of those areas that we could go back as far as we wanted and find a story anecdotally that it happened, but it seems that in a, at least one of the articles, uh, Hippocrates, the, the father of modern medicine, was kind of credited with this idea that these very aromatic scents in, that were found in nature had um, some kind of a healing effect on the body. And people extrapolated that to go to the different routes that we know of treatment with essential oils today with um, topical applications, um, absorption by inhalation or aromatherapy, uh, oral preparations, as well as just mucosal absorption with kind of flavorings. So like chewing gum or mints or... Or mouthwashes or flavors to different... Um, items that you might be eating, yeah. So just to be clear, the essential oils, and, and I think this adds to some of the complexity, can be uh, used or ingested or, or taken into the bloodstream through any of the four mechanisms. Yeah, so yeah, that's my understanding is through through the skin, um, by through the nose, uh, actually eating it or just absorbing it through kind Pitched. of the, the mouth, which seems to be a lot less and I will just offer a, a word of caution here one of the uh, side effects and a couple of the anecdotes in some of the articles that I read you should not ingest pure essential oils it was associated with chemical burns with people that didn't uh, take preparations that actually uh, tried to consume 100% of the essential oil jeez, oh, it's kind of scary all of a sudden alright so I thought, it, I don't know where to tackle this. There are all these different pieces that I think are worth talking about. So one of the, the next piece that I think is probably worth talking about before we even dive into some of the specifics about, about uh, lavender oil. Uh, lavender, I'll, I'll just leave it at lavender because that tackles all the preparations. There, there might be differences in the way that this is absorbed, right? So, um, these aromatic uh, compounds can actually, I, if I understand correctly, cross the cribriform plate so they can be, they, they, don't, they, they don't necessarily have to bind at the, at the center receptors. That's my understanding is that they can actually get to the, the mucosa in, in your olfactory center and be absorbed and kind of cross into the bloodstream that they don't really have to be transported across um, membranes, they kind of diffuse easily with their size. In addition to that, in addition to diffusion, and, and I don't know how this works, somebody hopefully can teach me a little bit more about olfactory uh, physiology. These molecules can also bind to a lot of specialized neurons that exist in the nasal mucosa. I, I mean, that's a question. I, I, I remember one of the articles that we uploaded that talked about this extensively, and I know they mentioned that there wasn't just one neuron that it could bind to, but there was a, a multitude of them that it could um, kind of bind to and lead to the signaling that kind of leads to these effects that we're going to be talking about. So, so just to be clear, we've talked about direct crossing the mucosa and eventually ending up into the brain and potentially binding in the brain as a receptor somewhere. Mm -hmm. We will talk about that in a few minutes. The, the other potential mechanism of action is that it simply uh, stimulates a certain combination of nasal uh, neurons that are involved in smell 
uh, or, or sensory, olfactory sensories, sensations and that that combination of those molecules may create the outcome that that people are studying. Yeah and uh, I found in one of the articles by uh, Farrar I believe that it has this whole pathway through uh, the olfactory to the olfactory bulb all the way to the amygdala, the hippocampus, to the limbic system and um, kind of goes upper respiratory then to lower respiratory and then it talks about the molecules eventually getting absorbed maybe through the bloodstream in in the lungs but it seems to have the the two effects when it goes through the aromatherapy route and and i think generally then we're talking about even if you massage somebody like if you massage somebody with some sort of oil that has lavender these lavender compounds in it that gets a pretty good blood level and eventually ends up in the brain as well yeah i saw a couple of the um of the articles that talked about the actual measured levels of the linalool in the bloodstream following the different mechanisms of absorption and they they seemed pretty comparable you would think that kind of the oral preparations would get absorbed much better and it doesn't doesn't seem to be the case i think when i was originally looking for articles i tried to steer away from the uh, aromatherapy massage because i didn't want it to be uh, complicated by what was the effects of the massage and what was the effects of the aromatherapy yeah, it, it was surprising to me at the, the blood levels. All right, so so just I, I think just a quick summary for me then is there are a lot of there there are a lot of things that might be meaningful in terms of how this medication or this substance is medication like in that it reaches or creates some sort of effect downstream, right? And I think that's worth noting because quite often we think of medications as as one strategy, right? You swallow something and it goes to your stomach and then it goes to the important tissue for some sort of activity. We, we are aware of other medications that are given intranasally, right? There's intranasal insufflation for, uh, or nasal insufflation for things like ketamine. We also have some sublingual tablets um, in psychiatry that are truly sublingual, right? Acenapine uh, uh, is a molecule that's, that is absorbed through the mucosa. Um, but this is this seems somewhat different, and the idea of how other molecules might be medications in the future, I think, m- might have some meaning here. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting to note that even in these studies that we're going to talk about, um, there isn't a clear picture. There seems to be several proposed mechanisms that we're going to need to go over. Speaking of studies, um, there's actually a meta-analysis out there on whether or not uh, and, and, and again, I, I want to be really careful here because the challenge with meta-analysis is that they can sometimes group and exclude things so that the picture that they get uh, seems to be favorable, but there's a very reasonable meta-analysis that says something along the lines of lavender oil seems to be a little bit more effective than uh, paroxetine. Yeah, so um, I know they were able to combine um, information from a set of um, studies that was done by, I believe, was that the studies done by Casper et al.? Um, I don't have the name of it with me right here, yeah. That they looked at um, Selexin, which is the uh, preparation of the oil, the lavender. The the linalool and linalil acetate. Yeah, and um, it's actually uh, produced by a company out in Germany, 
and sold there as Lysaia, and it's sold here in the U.S. as a uh, over-the-counter medication called Calm Aid that you can find in in stores. And uh, I think they did a set of four or five studies, them specifically, but I believe that the the meta-analysis looked at one or two others that they were able to find that had some decent information that um, the outcomes seemed to be to pretty favorable. It was. I think this was the YAP article actually. A network okay. meta-analysis showed better outcomes than paroxetine, but not better than uh, Ativan, mm-hmm. which, which of course we know. But if if Ativan were the perfect solution, we wouldn't have looked for SSRIs either. I guess right, <laughs> or, or SSRIs wouldn't have been so popular. Um, all right. So, so that meta-analysis just. Putting that into context, we have a medication, there's a decent meta-analysis, there are reasonable articles, there's a medication that is referred to as Silexan, Lysaia, and as uh, Calmade as an over-the-counter product here in the United States. And, and this medication has had a number of studies. This, or this uh, essential, it's not really an oil, it's a, it's a capsule, and it comes from this uh, Lavendula, Lavendula angustifolia plant, right? It has the linalool and linalil acetate, and they encapsulate that, and then they give that to people, and the studies show what when they do that. Well, it, from the, the studies, and I'm looking at this meta-analysis, it was this group, Casper, uh, et al., in Germany, that did quite a few studies, that it seems like um, when they ingest these capsules, which are 80 milligrams, and either take them in 80 milligrams or 160 milligrams, they had reductions in the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale total score that was extremely significantly, statistically significant compared to uh, placebo. And and I think um, at least the YAP article had at least 500 uh, people that were involved in the various studies, and I don't know, I, I don't know that I saw the Casper study and what the overlap might be. Well, the, these Casper were the ones included in that meta-analysis by YAP. Okay, and and then um, so quite often, we, sometimes we've gone into the articles, the specific articles, and and said we have heartburn about this part of the article, heartburn about this part of the article. T- tell me about the quality of the article if you uh, if you kind of looked at it from that angle. So yeah, it was actually really nice. I actually found an article that went over how good the articles were that I had found. So these articles that were included in the meta-analysis, there was actually an article that went over how good they were. And out of the, the five done by the Casper group, it seemed like three of them um, did a did a great job setting up and not having too many biases or having um, kind of criteria that made it so that they skewed their data. Two of them, there might have been some, some skewing of the data with uh, how they selected their participants. Um, but it seemed like overall that they did some some pretty pretty reasonable studies. So so we'll spend less time on the studies today than we usually do. Um, were there differences, and now that was the oral medication, right? Were there, were there some studies that you came across that spoke to uh, uh, the difference between Lysaia slash Calmade and maybe your run-of-the-mill lavender oil that you would you know, get a massage with? So I couldn't find any studies on it, and I think it would probably be a, a great point of study if anyone in the in the U.S., especially some of these companies that seem to seem to be focused here, where we are now here in Utah, would be willing to kind of do a comparison with between the two. But I I couldn't find any information or any studies that had been done comparing. 
I'm going to be a little bit cynical. The studies cost so much that I don't think there's a reason to have to do it if you already have a lot of people buying it. And the, the other question I would ask is, even if you had the studies, would people like me that get a Charlie horse when I hear essential oil, would we be willing to look at the data and make changes if the data were compelling? And, and I think that's one of the, the reasons why I really wanted to look into this because um, I think um, many clinicians had that knee-jerk reaction to hearing essential oils and some of the other alternative medicines um, is that it's kind of, they're, they're a little bit skeptical that there could actually be any science supporting what the use of these compounds. So, um, I want to talk a little bit more about aromatherapy now. So we talked about essential oils, we've talked about there's some reasonable data for oral uh, capsules. Tell me about the data for aromatherapy. So I think one of the, the difficult things is it's hard to blind a study when um, you can obviously uh, smell and identify what you're, what you're testing. I found uh, quite a few articles that um, had to do with um, mental health and physical health in individuals who had subsyndromal anxiety symptoms. Mm -hmm. So these are people that might not meet the criteria for a generalized anxiety disorder or any of those high yield topics that we talked about at the beginning. But, um, but they're was... not as happy as they could be. Exactly. There and might so be I, a better pathway to live. Okay. I, I think we were looking at uh, quality of life for these individuals. And one of the articles that I looked at out of China uh, talked about how prevention is better than a cure. And so they talked about these uh, 75 patients that they looked at who are middle-aged and elderly individuals who seem to have a higher prevalence of some, some anxiety and some depressive type symptoms, which they looked at both. And they divided them into groups getting essential oil massage, essential oil massage and inhalation, a base oil massage, and then just the compound essential oil inhalation. And over eight weeks, um, they ended up with a stress reduction of uh, two points and it looked like their their full point system was at about uh, 30 points uh, compared to only a half point if they didn't use the oils. It, was that a meaningful reduction? Did people say okay that those two points made a huge difference for me or is it did it really say that? So and, and I think we're talking about the difference between the clinical significance versus the statistical significance here. Yes. And, and while I was looking at it, it seemed that the numbers made it seem not that impressive, but all of the anecdotal responses from the patients on them selecting for themselves on a separate scale, how much of a difference they thought it made, it made a big difference on their their day-to-day -day interpretation of their, their mood. And, and was there any differences between, so, so you had a number of arms, it looks like there were what, five arms in this trial, and the inhalation arm, was it equivalent to the uh, massage? Yeah, so it seemed like the, um, the inhalation uh, being added to the massage had slightly better results, but I don't think there was any statistical significance between the groups. It was just all of the treatment arms was better than, than, the, than no treatment. Than no treatment. So, the, so even, so just to clarify, it seems like the aromatherapy or no intervention is like a wait list, right? Mm -hmm. so, so there'd be somebody who was getting a massage without aromatherapy and without uh, lavender oil, 
probably difficulty was blinding in that still, but they weren't showing as much benefit as the group that was getting the massage with the lavender oil or the massage with the lavender oil and the aromatherapy. That's what I saw in this study, yeah. That seemed to be the results that they were getting. Okay. Um, next question. How much does Calmate cost? I think that's a that's a great question. <laughs> I didn't actually run to the store to find that out, but I think we have that information. We, we actually... So, yeah, so I, I just looked on Amazon. So 30 soft gels is about 15 bucks. So 15, 50 cents 50 to a cents dollar a day, uh, because I think, and those are 80 milligram capsules, yeah, right? Yeah, 80 milligrams. Yeah. Very, very cool. So that's uh, that's not as cheap as fluoxetine, right? Fluoxetine and citalopram, I think you can get for either 4 or $6, depending on the amount you get from Walmart, right? They still run the $4 meds, I think, at Walmart. Mm -hmm. um, but that's fairly inexpensive, considering that other treatments that are branded through pharmaceutical companies end up being for anxiety and depressive disorders end up being quite a bit more. Next, I think the next thing we wanted to go into, so just kind of reiterating here, we have a problem, generalized anxiety disorder. We do have a number of treatments for it. We talked about CBT, we talked about SSRIs, SSRI, uh, SS, SS, and SNRIs, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Ryan, I could see you mouthing it to me, trying to bail me out there. Um, SNRIs, buce, Barone, um, and if I didn't mention CBT already, I should have. And then we also have, uh, these medications are an incomplete solution, generally speaking. Uh, there are some people that still suffer with a great deal of anxiety. Um, and so there's, there's still an unmet need, and it seems like there's at least data here that suggests that as a primary care physician, if somebody came in and said, I'm interested in trying uh, something that's more natural for my anxiety, it seems like there's at least some data that would support using this. And, and I think one of the, the great points could be a lot of these patients, I think having a little bit of uh, shared decision-making would be great here, and maybe offering to start off on both a prescribed medication as well as something like Calm Aid or an aromatherapy option might be a good um, compromise to start out with. Yeah. I would probably be more willing to urge an SSRI or SNRI with aromatherapy because I think that's harder to nail down the benefits whereas the, the uh, sleep aid I'd be much more open to here's what I want to do I want to try it and yeah come back and check in with me. One of the things I thought was interesting is that this medication does seem to have some drug-drug interactions for this substance does. So as I was looking at this it looks like um, as far as drug-drug interactions there was a study done that it doesn't interact with the P450, right. which was which was important. And so they looked at it compared with giving patients the the medication. It looks like they gave it to them for um, uh, 11 days, and then had them go into the hospital 12 hours before they gave them a, the option of either having caffeine, tolbutamine, omeprazole, dextromorphan, HBR, and, or midazolam and uh, monitor them for 24 hours and there didn't seem to be any effects on any of those CYP right. sections which I thought was yeah they didn't, they didn't see this good. to be a CYP molecule but it mm -hmm. looked like there might be something for renally excreted molecules where there was some buildup in some of those molecules and it wasn't clear to me that we have a good a complete picture of that yet but I would say that anything that is excreted and has a narrow therapeutic window um, or risk for toxicity that you 
uh, at least check as much as you can any resources that might give you an idea that there would be a drug-drug interaction of note. I, I, rem I thought I read that it increased the levels of phenobarbital, but maybe I'm mixing that up with something else. I, I think what they, they found, and I'm trying to remember the study, it seemed that it lead, led to an increased sedative effect of the phenobarbital. That's right. But I don't know if they actually found that there was increased levels of the phenobarbital in the system. It seemed to be that through a different mechanism that the, the relaxation effect of the lavender made it so the phenobarbital was almost more potent in these patients. There was a, there was a, a like a, a, pot, a potentiating mm -hmm. effect, yeah. That sounds familiar, although I, I did think that there was potentially some sort of other drug-drug interactions, but now that you're reminding me, I, I think it was only, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't blood levels that were affected as much as some sort of uh, internal effect. Yeah, that's what I seem to remember, and I might be remembering incorrectly. Nope, I'm pretty sure you remember it a lot better than I do. All right, so how, how do these molecules work? Well, um, th I think there are several articles that we have here that we've looked at, and it seems that they, they work on a different area than most of the other medications that we've talked about that help with anxiety work on, which is, which is very interesting because they seem to have that similar, similar result when we looked at a couple of studies that um, looked at paroxetine, and I believe that we looked at a, a study that had lorazepam compared to the selexin. Mm -hmm. Um, molecules. So it seems that they have something to do with the serotonin 1A receptor. Yeah, that was one of the things that one of the articles made the case for. I, I think the thing that surprised me was that the, the way they were trying to look at solving the equation here, right? What is, it, what is the secret sauce here and how do we duplicate it? Because that's also probably worth money if you can figure that out, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the first articles I read was the article about uh, voltage-dependent calcium channels. Uh, and, and I think that this is the article that you're referencing where they seem to think that uh, maybe there's a link between the VDCC, uh, the, the VDC channels, to serotonin and 5-HT1. But I, I didn't seem to see the clarity in that story that they were making. I, I know that they talked about, so there's just to kind of give a little background, there are three types of channels and this is the most engaging podcast content ever, right? Talking about channels. But it looks like there's three uh, three specific kinds of channels that are uh, voltage-dependent calcium channels. First is T-type, and according to the article we read, this seems to be devoid of any abuse potential. That statement is, is made. I don't know how accurate that is. There's an N-type channel, and I don't know very much about those. I didn't find out more information. And then there's the PQ-type uh, voltage-dependent calcium channel, um, and those don't seem to have the alpha-2 delta activity, if I remember right. Yes, that's correct. So it looks like it's acting on a different part of the channels than the pregabalin would um, in patients. And then one of the other points that they made, so these were studies that were done with uh, mice, if I remember correctly. And, and one of the things that they made the case on was that one of the reasons why perhaps there's overlap here is because there's a lag in onset of benefit. And uh, they think that potentially BDNF might be somehow upregulated the activity of BDNF um, in making in making uh, these molecules help at least in depression, right? Not necessarily for anxiety. I think there was a, an article that you and I talked about a little bit where they had some slides that were stained. Yeah, so I think this was the one that the 
one of the main articles was Sanchez Vedania, and it look, they looked at in, in rats um, the neurogenesis and dendritic complexity. Um, and I think the reason that they did this is because it's been shown that in anxiety and depressive states, that the dendritic complexity, so the branching of those um, dendritic arms, decreases, and that you end up with lower levels of a compound called BRDU and DCX positive cells, which are kind of indications of neurogenesis. And it seems like in the adult brain, specifically in the hippocampus and the um, subventricular uh, areas. Yeah, so I had to read this like seven times to track the BRDU cells and the uh, and the uh, what were the other ones you mentioned? The DCX positive cells. positive cells, right? So, so I looked at this a number of times, and what helped me was actually looking at the slides. So, so what they're saying is we have these markers of dendritic growth, and so so first one was dendritic growth, and one was neuritic growth, right? Mm -hmm. That's so, correct. So, so one is dendrites and arborization, maybe, or or maybe synaptic. Or, or maybe it's little spines on the dendrite. It wasn't. It wasn't as clear to me. But then some of the data was pretty clear that we're getting new neuronal growth, or or neuronal growth that wouldn't have happened uh, with just the 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 um, control mice, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it looks like they took the these twenty four rats and they kind of divided them into different treatment groups, and they injected some of the rats with only corticosteroid to kind of mimic a high anxiety state. And other ones, they um, it had a control arm, obviously, that they didn't do any treatment. They had ones that just had the lavender oil inhalation. And then they had separate uh, rats that I think were the most interesting, where they actually injected the corticosterone and gave them the aromatherapy. And it looks like they uh, did that um, for 14 days of treatment, um, waited two to three days, and then dissected the brains. Yeah, I was intrigued by by this study too because um, even at the end of the study, they make the comment about uh, blood levels and whether there was any validity to it or not, and what it might have meant because they were taking, I think, peritoneal uh, levels, serum levels, and they said, but we never really checked brain levels, and maybe that's different, and maybe that's important. It would have. It feels like they said, here's our weakness, and and it kind of made the study seem like wait a minute, there is a big piece missing here. Yeah, I, I thought this study was, was probably one of the more interesting ones I, I read. Definitely drew me in and was very... I, I, I learned a lot in, in general about um, anxiety and kind of the changes it makes on, on the brain and uh, was able to see how there, there were some gaps in what they were able to accomplish. But they, they did a very good job of covering and, and explaining why those gaps were present in this study and what their results kind of led you to conclude. Interesting bench research to try and help explain the mechanism of action. For sure. I, I still don't think it tied us from, to the point of I ingest the substance to it's upregulated. I don't even think we saw B, BDNF levels that were clearly associated, uh, changed associated with the, the use of the molecule. A couple of the other things I thought were interesting. So when I talked about this um, <clears throat> this podcast prep being helpful, the, the idea of different strategies for ingestion of, of medications was helpful. The idea that the the um, the senses, the the uh, smell senses, 
might be a therapeutic mechanism to the brain was interesting, something I'll keep my eye on. The differences between the calcium channels and the different roles they have is interesting. I thought it was fascinating how they tried to add and subtract out different calcium channels to try and see the effect. And one of the most compelling statements that I thought was made was, we can improve sleep without sedation, meaning that improvement in wellness isn't associated with causing sleep. A lot of times as students prepare for shelf exam, they'll say, well, if, uh, if somebody um, is has problems with insomnia as part of their picture for depression, then I should give a medication that causes somnolence. Well, that doesn't necessarily seem to be true. I think they're making the case that you treat the condition and the symptoms of the condition will improve. And I thought that was fascinating. And, the, and they tried to make that case based on subtracting out different receptors. One of the other things I thought was a, a pretty important part of this, and we've talked about this to some extent, is uh, the way that we can measure whether the brain is responding to molecules, at least mice brain, right? And so we see things like uh, GAP43, which is a measure of neuritic growth as well, uh, in PC12, uh, PC12 cells, it looks like they were using that. And I thought it was fascinating that uh, lavender oil was almost as effective as a fibroblast growth factor in inducing that change. That was a, a fascinating comment made to me. A lot of things about the biology of these, or the, the maybe I should say biochemistry of these molecules that I think we're still trying to understand. Yeah, and, and I think one of the other things from one of the other articles that we looked at, the, the changes in the levels of gray matter in the brain that they've been able to, to link to anxiety, the reduced levels, and seeing those increased levels, as well as seeing the changes in the 5-HT1A receptors in the hippocampus and the anterior cingulate cortex that they saw, so the reduced amount of the receptors in those parts of the brain is directly related to the side effects of escitalopram and ECT once they do those treatments. It's the same effect as when they used this selexin on these rats to do these therapies. So, so just to be clear, citalopram is called Selexa as its uh, trade name. And we've sometimes re uh, referred to linalool and linalil uh, acetate as Silexan. S-I-L-E-X-A-N, because that's the one of the names that's used for this compound in Germany, this product from Germany. Um, but just to be clear, Selexa or escitalopram, or rather Selexa or citalopram, one molecule, Silexan, linalool, and linalil acetate, another molecule, right? Yeah. Good. Um, very interesting that, that it would have similar kinds of effects. Now, one of the things I think we've done a little bit is we've, we've merged the data between the studies for anxiety and depression, right? You talked mm -hmm. about depression. I think the data for depression is still more preclinical. That was the MICE data, but I think the data on anxiety was more, uh, more locked down. Yeah, so we, we couldn't find, unfortunately, any kind of a Cochrane review with lavender and anxiety or depression. There was um, a couple of Cochrane reviews, actually, that I was surprised to find on uh, lavender oil for other treatments, such as uh, uh, PMS symptoms and uh, dealing with pain. Um, but it does seem that they've revisited some of these original studies that they had done on anxiety, and because of the overlap with symptoms with depressive symptoms, maybe not a major depressive disorder, they were able to find that um, they actually had an improvement in depressive symptoms as well at the same time that they were getting the improvement in the anxiety symptoms. 
Yeah, the, the overlap of the symptoms is sometimes hard to um, hard to ignore. So, the, just out of curiosity, when you looked at those uh, Cochrane Review articles, did it say if lavender oil seemed to have some benefit in treatment of uh, either PMS or in treatment of pain syndromes? Yeah, so it seemed like it, it did really help um, with the treatment of pain syndromes. I was able to look at a couple of, of the studies included in the review, uh, specifically for the pain associated with childbirth. And it seemed to be that the aromatherapy with lavender did, did have a statistically significant reduction of pain during childbirth. I think uh, Thomas, in the last podcast, we looked at uh, RTMS, ITBS. I, I think he made the comment that there are thousands of studies in the pipeline with mm-hmm. TMS. Did you by any chance look at the pipeline for studies with uh, lavender oil? It looks like we're in the mid-500s right now for lavender oil uh, studies that are currently being run. Wow. You mentioned before, I think we talked about um, this Silexan slash uh, Lycia slash Calmade. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Germany, it has a... I don't know that it has an FDA approval, but it has a stamp of approval of some sort. Yeah, so I I was able to look up this PDF document that's a summary of product characteristics, which we saw in several of the articles that there seemed to be, they seemed to be hinting that there was almost an FDA for Europe or maybe just for Germany level of approval, but we couldn't find anything concrete, but it looks like it's uh, indicated, and I want to look at the exact wording here. Well, while you look at that, I'm just going to say we looked, like we looked for package insert, we looked for Silexan PI, we looked for all sorts of different kinds of things that might give us a hint. But I think one of the challenges we have is I, I don't know that I know the European regulatory agency that has the equivalent kind of authority that the uh, Food and Drug Administration has here. I probably should have Googled something like. Uh, European Union FDA equivalent, and then I probably would have had it. But uh, in Germany, there there is at least uh, a specified use. And here in the United States, I, I think it might be like what a medical food is here, where a medical food is uh, something along the lines of uh, uh, tetrahydrofolate, which can be used in people who have the MTFR uh, um, uh, gene which which doesn't code correctly for the for the enzyme that changes um, is it biotin to tetrahydrofolate so folate to tetrahydrofolate is not usable if you have that uh, that uh, um, the the non-standard gene I don't know what you even call that the <laughs> totally lost the word <laughs> it's it's when a gene is is corrupted what do you call that um, mutant mutation. Mutation, so uh, the mutation, I think it's uh, FDA, it's a medical food approved for that uh, MTFR, MTFFR, MTFRR mutation. And I think that's something you guys see in your shelf work now at this point, right? So anyway, you're going to give us the... Yeah, so here, here on this document, it says a traditional herbal medicinal product for relief of mild anxiety and to aid sleep. And I know as we were looking at a couple of the different articles, it said that it was indicated for the use in restlessness and anxiety symptoms is the official 
use in Germany. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that it had restlessness, but I think that also speaks to the idea of generalized anxiety disorder that we talked about before. Um, what haven't we talked about to this point? Um, I think we've covered uh, the uh, aromatherapy, and we've talked about the use of Selexan or Calm Aid as well. And I, I think we've talked about uh, the majority of the information I think is most relevant. I think there was a lot of other information about um, maybe about uh, concentrations, which might be the only thing that we could go over. So one of the difficulties with a lot of these studies is Selexan or Calm Aid has a concentration of 36.8% linalool and 34.2% linalool acetate. But in all of these different studies, uh, some of the reviews that I looked at um, indicated that some of the studies weren't as reputable as some of the others because the range of these molecules for the linalool ranges from 26% all the way to almost 58% and the linalool acetate from 4% to almost 36%. So there's this massive range that they might not be reaching therapeutic levels of these compounds in, in the blood with some of these studies just because of their starting product. I think you made the case to me that the advantage of uh, Calmate is that perhaps the percentages are more consistent. And, and I'm not sure if that's because it comes in a capsule or if just because it comes um, a little bit tighter regulated, I think, than a lot of these other oils that are on the market. It's because of where it's manufactured, it has a different regulatory set. Exactly. Uh, I think a couple other things quickly along those lines. Uh, Half-life is about two hours for the linalool. Uh, linalool acetate is almost immediately converted into linalool. It's a, pre, it's a prodrug, so to speak. You, you don't find it in the blood as soon as it's, as soon as it's ingested, right? It, goes, it disappears very, very quickly. Yeah, and we reach our, our T-max at the, at the one hour mark and then the, the half-life is at that two-hour mark. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, anything else that we haven't talked about? I think we've, we've covered a majority of, of this information that kind of we thought was most, most important, kind of cherry-picked from all these different articles we kind of looked at. And uh, what would your recommendation be now if somebody came in and said, uh, Doc, should I use fluoxetine or should I use Calmade to treat my generalized anxiety disorder? And, and I think a, a big part of this might be um, their history, you know? You look at this patient and see if they have a, a history of re um, getting relief, um, going on fluoxetine in the past, maybe with previous episodes of generalized anxiety disorder, but especially for patients that might be in that 30% that haven't found quite what works, I mean, maybe we should we should be referring them to the over-the-counter section of the the grocery store and sending them for some for some Calmade. Oh, very good. I, I think I made a mistake there, just barely. By the way, I don't think I, I know we talk about SSRIs, SNRIs being first-line indication for generalized anxiety disorder, but I don't. I I'm trying to remember, but I don't know that uh, fluoxetine actually got the FDA approval for GAD. I think that uh, paroxetine probably did. I think. Uh, probably the two SNRIs did, but I don't remember if, uh, if fluoxetine actually did. You guys are madly looking at the package insert now. Um, well, well uh, they're doing that, Ryan. 
tell me what your takeaway is from this uh, podcast. <clears throat> My takeaway is I think that the Charlie horse that we get as clinicians or trained to look at data and look at things that aren't just anecdotal, I you kind of opened my eyes when you said, well, what would be the advantage to them putting money into doing studies when you can already sell it and make a bunch of it? And that's kind of an eye-opening comment to me. Um, so I don't know. I It's unfortunate to me. I think that when we're talking about something as significant as GAD, when we're talking about how many people suffer from this type of thing, it would be helpful to know concretely like what exactly you know these things do. Um, so I don't know. That's my takeaway. I wish that I, I get it. I mean, if you're a company that sells this stuff and you're making billions of dollars every year and what's in it for me to fund research when people are already willing to buy it, I get that. But It's hard for me to see the upside so, of the study, yeah. yeah. Any other takeaways? That's kind of the main one for me. By the way, this is totally unfair to your peers when you get the first uh, takeaway. Yeah. All right, Katie, what's your takeaway? Well, I thought it was really interesting, and it seems like there's a lot of good data and a good a lot of good points that you made. Um, I I think it can like help a lot of people. Um, I know there's still a big stigma with mental health and talking about mental health and anxiety and depression. So. Um, having maybe an alternative to an SSRI, especially in patients that are a lot more hesitant to um, get on those medications, I think that is like a good starting point um, to kind of like address that topic and ease somebody into seeking treatment for um, mental health and GID. So you're saying that somebody that is hesitant to work with a therapist, somebody that Mm. maybe either doesn't want to take pills because it means they're weak unless they take a natural pill, uh, or maybe is having terrible side effects, right? These mm-hmm. SSRIs. Uh, for many people, there's a deal breaker of sexual dysfunction, right? And for other people, uh, the, the shelf question is suicidality, right? Mm-hmm. You have to watch out and monitor for that with the use. The, these medications aren't for everybody, and, and having a, a not only a second strategy that's very palatable, but maybe a first strategy that's most palatable mm-hmm. for somebody's reasonable, reasonable yeah. take. What about you? What is your takeaway? I think... I think this kind of almost sparked more questions for me. I think um, with planning on going into um, a primary care field, um, it can only be an advantage to know more about these alternative treatment options that might be so attractive to many of the the patients that come through the door. And for the patients that come through the door already maybe self-treating with some of these um, formulations or these different molecules, it would be very advantageous to know what they're doing and what's what's the real indications and if there is any data out there that either supports or refutes what's what's going on i think um i think i would definitely be interested in looking even more into um lavender for anxiety and depression but also for those other indications that seem to pop up with those cochrane reviews to to be well informed and educated so that I can make uh, educated decision, clinical decision-making uh, recommendations for patients that come in the office and uh, kind of quell my uh, knee-jerk reaction to some of the alternative medicines that might come through the door. So I think you're speaking a lot to one of my take-homes, and that is um, my Charlie horse in my forehead doesn't help me be a better physician if I don't go read more about it and learn what's going to happen. I think you're implying that patients will do whatever they want to do 
ultimately, and you can either be on board, not on board, but at least informed, or maybe even adding something useful. I think what I would do based on this information is I, I still don't know that this is my first line treatment, right? Uh, however, it might be a third or fourth line treatment. The other thing that I would say is if somebody tells me I'm only using uh, essential oils, so you you tell me which one to use, right? Mm -hmm. if, if somebody's involving me in that, at least I get to talk about drug-drug interactions, make sure that it's uh, not causing problems. If somebody's on phenobarbital, for example, for uh, seizures, then maybe we need to change the anti-epileptic if it's going forward with or without me, right? Um, the other thing, though, that I think that I would take away from this is that the best data seems to be for capsules that we came across. Maybe that will change. Maybe there's more out there we missed. But if I had a patient talking to me, I would say, listen, this isn't my first line recommendation, but if this is what you prefer, this is a reasonable strategy. However, the best strategy amongst the lavender oil strategies is, is the capsules. I recommend you use the capsules, which I think gets you involved. It helps the patient understand that you care about them, you care about the way that they want to tackle things, that their values are important to you, and that you have read the data and can at least help provide an important uh, opinion. So, so I walk away from this podcast thinking to myself, gosh, you know, I've, I've just done this, and for those of you that are watching on podcast, uh, on audio, um, I just put my arms up in the blocking shape in front of my body, right? Instead of doing that every time somebody talks about uh, about nutraceuticals or things along those lines or, or scraping, uh, rubbing my forehead and saying that I have a Charlie horse, then what I need to do is be able to read the information and say, hey, listen, here's what I read. I think the, the literature is in its infancy stage or two randomized controlled trials with pretty good data and well-respected that's an equivalent to an SSRI indication, right? Then that, that moves up a step, and then depending on how strongly I think those, those research articles are done. So, so I think that this uh, helped me be better at thinking about how do I look at all the treatments. And, I, and, and in all fairness, I think uh, the students that have been pushing me along these lines for the last number of years as we've done the podcast have helped me see things that I would have otherwise been blind to. So I don't know. It's a very interesting topic and I'm very glad you chose it. Andrew, uh, you get the last word. I think I already pontificated enough. Anything else you would add or tell us? Um, I think um, the, the only other thing I could add is that I think this topic is a, a great way for everyone to be aware of that, that shared decision making that happens in the clinic. That this might be one of those educate yourself, not because it would be your choice ever in clinic, but educate yourself because you will have patients that this might be the right solution for, or you might have patients that come through the door that this is the solution that they want, and enabling them to advocate for themselves and be a part of their treatment will lead to better results always. I think you're right, and, and I think, I don't think a physician ever has to uh, give a medication or prescribe a medication that they don't feel comfortable with. I don't think that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. In this case, you don't have that choice, right? This is not regulated in any way. And so all you can do is be somebody that's involved in the, here's what I know, here's how it might interact. So, and, and I think that's the epitome of shared decision-making in so many ways. Yeah, I would agree. Um, unless there's anything else, let's call it, on that note, team out. Team, team out. out.